Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband, our Daf of the day, Masachat Moed Katan, Daf Hey, page five. Um, from the very top of our Daf, we're still talking about cisterns, right? The collecting receptacles for rainwater. Amar Yaakov, Amar Biochanan, Lo Shano Elisha'ein Rabim Tzrichin Lehem, Aval Rabim Tzrichin Lehem, Afilo Chafira Mutar. So this was, again, this is following on the discussion from the previous Daf, about what happens when you, if you would might need to the water from the cisterns to irrigate the field, and we talked about that previously. You know, basically the the answer is no, except for that. Then there's kind of like different caveats, and one of the big caveats is right here, right? That if the public would need the cisterns, if the public would need that water, then not only can you you know pull the water from it, but you can actually dig new. And I think what this part of the stuff is that we really have the difference between when you have Jews living in a non-Jewish, you know, secular, I don't care if the surrounding society is religious, but it's not the Jewish um, society surrounding, versus when the Jews are the governing body. Because the whole idea of digging cisterns, right? Meaning we're talking about public works. We're talking about, you know, how do you, maintain the public um also of ways and that is primarily relevant in a jewish sovereign state or you know maybe it was relevant in a shtetl let's say where the jews were in charge of themselves within that shtetl but then they're in charge of making sure that all of these things are functioning and and that would exactly be the issue let's say i don't know that the cistern gets filled with um, you know leaves or something and now you need a new one or you need to clean it out properly because otherwise you don't have fresh water. But if there's a surrounding state, let's say that's not Jewish, then I would imagine that these public works go to the address, right? The address to to have something done about them is not the Jewish community. And therefore halacha would not necessarily even be in play. So this entire discussion about what's permitted and what's not permitted presumes, I think, I think that the, it presumes um, a, a, some level at least of Jewish autonomy, if not sovereignty. The Gemara goes on. So the Gemara wants to know, you know, if the public needs them, is are we going meaning these cisterns for the water? Is it really permissible to dig the Hatanya? Because didn't we already learn in a brightahotin Meaning this brightah says that you can clean out cisterns or ditches or caves or whatever of an individual during Cholomite. And if you can do all of that for an individual, then certainly you can do that for the needs of the of the public, of the rabbim. And likewise, it goes on to say you do not dig, meaning you can clean them out, but you do not dig new cisterns or ditches or caves, whatever, for the public during Cholomite. And if you can't do it for the public, then obviously you can't do it, excuse me, for the individual, but the that there's an saying that we do not dig new ones um, on Cholamoid. My love, Bisharabim Srichin Lahem. So the Gemara goes on to ask, you know, so is that bright that talking about a case of where the public really needs them? Or is it, you know, just a, you know, you could do it any other day, so so don't do it over Cholamoid, wait until the following week. So the Gemara rejects us, the, the bright is referring to a case where the public does not need them. And so then that that resolves it, right? To say that if the public would need them, you could you could dig a new one. And if the public does not need them, then that's the break that says that you can.
And then the guy goes on here right, to raise a question about exactly this kind of thing of what happens when you've got borot, when you've got cisterns of an individual, right? Let's say, for example, and as compared to um, as compared to the rabbit, and can to what degree can you fix those cisterns? Can you or the again the the category is cisterns and ditches and caves, right? So there's a these are all put together as really receptacles of water in different kinds of ways. Um, can you clean them out? Can you plaster their cracks, right? When when is that acceptable and when is that not? So I'm jumping down a little bit where the Gemara goes on to say. Um, let's see. It says, mm-hmm. So this can, this repeats the brighter that, meaning I've skipped a bit in the Gemara, but it repeats the point from that brighter that says, if the if the public does not need them, you cannot, you know, dig new ones. And you obviously don't need to make that, to state it um, explicitly about an individual if you've already prohibited about the rabbim. It is implicit and also understood in each case, right, that the needs of the many trump any given private property need. Because if cleaning them is prohibited, right, so let's make sure that this is clear. Um, We don't, the Gemara says it doesn't even need to say the individual because if an individual uh, that's what we're talking about, then even cleaning it out would be prohibited. You can't clean it out for maintenance. You can only clean it out if you would actually need the use of that cistern over Cholomoid. The wording of our Mishnah was daika, was careful, was precise. Because it says explicitly, you know, attending to or doing the needs of the many. The public need. Kol lituyemai. What does it mean we say any, all of the public needs? Lav lituyechaveira. Shouldn't that also come to include digging of the cisterns? Meaning, if there's, doesn't include everything? And the Gemara says, no. Lo lituyehadetanya yotzin likaveitz et hadrachim takena tarchovot ve'et ha istras. I've stumbled on this word before. Ha istrataot ve'lamod et hamikraot. So the Gemara says, no, when the word in the Mishnah says kol, meaning any, all of the needs of the sibura of the public, then what that means is that on Cholomoid, you could go and the public, right, meaning, I don't know, the Department of Public Works, right, can go and clear thorns from the road, and they can fix the city streets, and they can fix the highways, that's the istarataot, and they can measure out the mikvaot, the ritual baths, to make sure that they have enough water, right, because it called you make sure that you've got 50, 40, excuse me, 40 sa'ah of water, that's a measure of volume of water in the mikvah, or doesn't work as a mikvah. So then the question is, what would happen? And this is the emphasis that indeed the public the community, the court has an obligation to go do all of these things because the Gemara goes on to say, how do we know that if people did not go out and make these repairs, that then there would be, you know, if any if anybody was injured, if any blood was shed because of them, that's considered that the court is guilty of having done so, of having shed this blood. And we've got a verse that says explicitly, so the blood be upon you, which is from Devarim Yotet, um, Deuteronomy 19, 
right? The idea that, um, and this comes back to talk about somebody who, where there's inadvertent manslaughter, meaning we're not, it's not really talking about one of these, one of these um, public works kinds of cases, but the negligence that is implicit there is, a, I guess it's similar, or the same kind of negligence. So therefore we're going to say, you know, any time that you need to make sure that things are ready for the public, that there's a need for the public to be safe or the thing should be cleaned or whatever, it needs to be done lest there be some kind of grievous injury that would follow from that. And then the Gemara questions that, because why not have more back and forth? So the Gemara says, one second. We have these cases that are explicitly said, I'm sorry, they're all explicitly taught in the Mishnah, meaning you can fix the roads and the streets and the mikvot, and you can do all the, again, you can do all the public needs. So then why do we have, if we've already said all these things explicitly, right, then then should not mean those same things because that's a redundancy. And the Mishnah, the Chazal in general, don't like that kind of redundancy. So then doesn't that mean to come, that it should come to include that you could dig a cistern if you needed to, mean all these other things of repairing that the previous passage wanted to teach. And the Gemara says, aha, uh-huh, yeah, Shema Mina, conclude from this, that indeed the Mishnah does indeed allow digging a new cistern if it was needed by the public. Now, I know that's the statement that was made at the very beginning of where I, you know, you could even dig a cistern if you needed one, if or not if you needed one, if the Rabim, if the public needed it, but the rationale of how to get there is this kind of meandering path that says, but one second, didn't we already say that you can't do exactly this? And then the Gemara walks its way through to say, and here's why it would be permitted. And I think that this is a good example of, you know, strong Gemara logic, where it's going to deal with um, Tanaitic material and biblical verses to put it all together to say, yes, indeed, any time, any kind of um, public need, including the thing that is explicitly prohibited for a case when it's not a public need. Um, so, you know, it's it's a compact um, illustration, I think, of this kind of, it's a little fancy footwork, but I don't think that it's far-fetched in the least. I think that it is really a good, solid limud of how do we get to this place that allows us to say, yes, the needs of the public trump the concern that you can't dig a cistern on Cholamoid. So I think a lot of what this staff talks about is the needs of the public. Your passage addresses it in a very direct way, like the Mishnah talks about it, right? That we can fix certain things because of the needs of the public and how do we delineate what the needs of the public are. Um, I want to read a different part, which is the issue of marking graves. And I think what I want to focus on here is, you know, that how much this was actually an issue uh, for, you know, for them in the sense of, you know, again, in, in Bavel, this may have been a little bit theoretical, but at least certainly in the times when the Beit HaMikdash was standing, um, you know, this was a real issue about, you know, making sure that you didn't sort of accidentally or unknowingly or unwittingly uh, pick up Tuma somewhere. And certainly for Kohanim, this was a real issue. And so I think that's why the marking of the graves, it's not just sort of a nice like, oh, let's put a Matseva up the way that we think about it today. It actually was a way of, you know, making a, it was a halachic marker, right? Does that make sense? Like it, it was a halachic marker to say like, 
make sure you don't go here. Um, I think it makes sense. I think also, right, what, go back to Psachim, where they had to avoid the graves, right? So to get to to get to Yerushalayim Batara, right now I understand that this is not exactly that discussion, but the marking of the graves at that time had so many ramifications that are not present in our society today. Yeah. So I just want to read two, you know, pieces from this. So the first is, uh, you know, it 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 quotes the, you know, it's talking about the halachot of marking graves, and so it quotes a brisa here. Tanu Rabbanan, a mitzanin lo al kizayit min hamed. So the courts basically don't mark the area of a kezayit worth of a corpse or of a bone that's the size of a barley of a barley grain or of an item that only can basically give uh, uh, tuma through physical contact, but doesn't give tuma with a tent. Meaning there are some things that if you're in a room with them or basically an ohel, right, you're in a covered area with them, it would give you Tuma if you were in the same area with them, because you're basically in the same room. But there are other items that you actually can only become tummy if you directly touch them. So if it's an item that you have to directly touch, it that's not something that the Beitin needs to mark. Um, but what about Mitzanin Alha Ashterav, Alha Gulgolet, a rov binyan bal rov minyan hamet. But they do mark the spine of a corpse, the skull. Um, or sort of the majority of the skeletal body or the majority of the number of bones of the body. So in other words, you have to have like a good portion of the skeleton or a significant part of the skeleton. And then we would consider that an area that you do need to mark. Right? They don't mark the area of certain ritual impurity. In other words, if it's an area that everyone knows it has tuma, we don't need to mark it. And again, I think this goes to what I was saying before, that this wasn't about putting a matseva up to be like this, you know, beloved person died there. This really was just sort of a practical halachic consideration of marking where one could walk or not walk or where one would pick up tuma or not pick up tuma. But what we do mark are places of uncertain ritual impurity, which makes sense because we want to make sure we want to be able to say like, hey, we're not sure. So we have to mark this area. And he's cure areas that are sort of considered to be uncertain. Overhanging uh, bows, right? Because the Gemara basically explains, because that could make a tent. Protusions, which also could make a tented area. So in other words, if you're underneath there with part of a corpse, then you would become Tame, right? Which the Gemara gets into a very interesting uh, discussion about, about exactly uh, what that is, but essentially it, it's it, it's it's where you plow a field that had a grave. And so the question is, you know, if there's sort of bone strewn throughout the field, that's what a bait ha, ha press is. Um, and so they, they get into a lot of discussion about that exactly. Right. And they don't put a marker specifically over the site of where the tuma is. Right, because they don't want to cause a loss to somebody who's uh, uh, the loss of something that's tahor. Meaning, here what we're talking about is, you know, like a food item. Because the problem is, is that if you put the marker where the tuma actually is, and somebody's carrying food, they may walk over to that marker, right? And you know, they may put the food on their accent, like before they realize what's going on, the food actually could become impure. 
So again, this speaks to that this marking of graves, again, when you read the Mishnah, we're as a modern reader, I'm thinking like, oh, Matseva, it has nothing to do with that. It's we're trying to get the least number of people to contact uh, Tuma. We also don't distance the marker. We don't make it too far from uh, from the site of the actual Tuma. Shalom left seed at Eretz Yisrael. So it's not to cause a loss of Eretz Yisrael. So in other words, we don't want to increase or make too many areas in Eretz Yisrael where people could not walk. So again, this also is a halacha that was specific to Eretz Yisrael. It didn't really have anything to do uh, with bubbles. And then the Gemara really begins sort of by analyzing uh, this brysa. And I just want to, you know, jump down uh, to one other, you know, a little bit more about the Beit HaPras, right? Beit HaPras gets none. Right, so the Beta Pras, this is a Mishnah in Ohalo, chapter 17, verse uh, Mishnah 1, right? That if you plow a field with a grave, right? And then the bones, you know, theoretically the bones could be all over the place. That's what we call a Beta Pras. And how much of the field do we say is a Beta Pras? The full length of the furrow, right? Which is about 100, which is about 100 uh, amot. So I think this is just, you know, an interesting uh, idea that really the function here was to prevent people from becoming tame, and that's a public good. So the same way that we want to protect the water supply, we also want to protect people from becoming tame, and that's why we were basically allowed to mark the graves, even on Cholomoed. Um, and again, this I think this reemphasizes this is a whole area of halacha that took up a lot of time, energy, allowed people to do things, you know, on Chalamoid that today is just like not part of our halachic life. And I'm always, you know, impressed with these types of passages that shows us how different the practice of halacha is, depending on what generation you were born into. In other words, what I mean by different is not that the halacha is different, but sort of like what I could imagine is like today, if you ask people like, what are the top three halachic areas you think about most? So most of us probably say Shabbos, Kashras, I don't know, one other one. But if you were to ask somebody in the days of the mission, you know, in the, in the time of the, you know, the Beit Hamikdash, what are the three areas you're most concerned with? Tuman Tara might have been up there before Shabbat, and that that's what I find interesting here. It is very interesting, um, and I think that it is one of the you know people talk about Karbanot being absent. I think that's more on our in the front forefront of our mind, perhaps because of things like Tefillah replacing Karbanot. But I think that the two Mantara issues are the ones that really probably changed, you know, were the most different. If we had them like imposed suddenly nowadays, we would have the most difficulty or or dramatic adjustment to them for sure, I think. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabinit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.